Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Special Education Matters. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I have an 18-year-old son with autism. Our sensory system has a profound impact on our everyday experiences and how we react to our world. Maybe a noise is annoying, a light too bright, or an article of clothing feels just not right. For children with special needs such as autism, ADD, and more, sensory struggles may be magnified to the point where they have a significant impact on their perception of the world. What may seem fine to us may actually be threatening to them. Understanding the sensory system and its role in a child's life is what I talked to Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rowley about today. We cover a lot of exciting material, including sensory seekers, sensory avoiders, body awareness, and much, much more. By the end of this podcast, you may find yourself having a good understanding of terms such as proprioceptive, vestibular, temporal, and spatial awareness. Wow. All right. Enjoy the conversation. Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rowley, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Oh, well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, today we're going to talk about the sensory system, which is such an important part for all of us as just regular people, and certainly as much or more important for kids who have special needs. And that's why I wanted to ask you about if you could just tell us a little bit about the sensory system itself and what sort of impact it might have on the students that we hang around and work with. Oh, I'm I'm happy to do that. I I have focused in my career on understanding sensory integration and how it links to everyday life activities. And um, the more I've studied about it, the more I appreciate that it's ubiquitous. It's it's processing and integrating sensation is as essential to life as breathing. Mm -hmm. It's something that most of us do unconsciously. And we're constantly decoding information that informs everything we do from the position in which we sleep or the choice of food, color, flavor, or texture, or what information we use to gracefully move across a room. Okay, so it broadly impacts how we're doing basically every moment of our lives. Correct. All right, so we could get into a little bit about sensory integration on child development, and there's a whole bunch of things to talk about in that regard. And we could start off with sensory uh, perception. And in that, there's some confusing new terms, perhaps, spatial awareness, temporal spatial awareness, and things like vestibular, proprioceptive processing, input, all those things. Do you want to go ahead and start there? Mm-hmm. And we could maybe step through it sort of slowly and, and define or better understand each part of it. Sensory perception is our knowledge based on sensation of what's going on inside of our body, such as if we're hungry and pain or have to use the toilet. Mm -hmm. It's also where our body is relative to the Earth's gravitational pull. So where our body is and how we're moving in gravity. And then the other part of our sensory perception is coming from the extraceptors, those things that tell us about things outside of our body, including the big five, you know, touch, vision, auditory, smell, and taste. Okay. So at every moment of every day, you have to integrate all of the information that's coming from inside by and about our body or outside of our body to, to develop a perceptual whole of our understanding of experience. So on a moment-to-moment basis, it informs our cognition. It allows us to form perceptual motor memories. And then we draw on those 
um, cognitive perceptual memories to figure out what we're going to do in the future. Ah, okay. So would that be something as simple as I walk into a room, I sort of memorize it uh, from a sensory point of view, and then later when I go in, I know how to interact with that room, whether there'd be a chair in one place or, uh, I don't know, a table in another? Yes, that's that's exactly it. You you if you think about your home, you probably have an internal perceptual representation of those things yeah. that are very familiar in your home. And as you figure out what you're going to do, and then then if you go in your home and somebody's moved your stuff, or suddenly you can't find something, it disrupts that perceptual memory, and you have to go into problem solving or planning. Okay, now what am I going to do about that? Where could that be? What could I do? Mm-hmm. How am I going to solve that problem of the location or the access to those things in my environment? Okay, so this motor planning is quite different than I assume developmentally. So example for me, I work in a school that's K through 12. And if I walk from one end of the school, which is high school down to the other end, the way I have to dodge kids is much different. Some are more clued in the older kids that I'm there and the younger kids are usually more likely to bump into me. Is that something then that changes mm-hmm. over time? Does it change over time? Well, I think I'm developmentally, I mean, by age. About- Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So we definitely see an increase in the sensory perceptual or integrative abilities uh, with age, although some of these very foundational abilities uh, tend to be intact by about uh, nine to 10 years of age. So that nine and 10 year olds are just as likely to be able to traverse an environment without falling or to know exactly where they're touched or how they're touched as, say, an adult. Okay. So then how does this impact kids that aren't typically developing, let's say a child with autism or something else? What sort of signs might we see or things that we can do to assist them to become more aware of where they are, where their body is? Well, the process of sensory integration is actually quite complex because um, it requires a massive amount of inhibition of non-essential sensory information uh, as a means by which (laughs) we're not going to go crazy because the world is filled with sensory Mm -hmm. possibilities, (laughs) things that you might attend to. So So that process of inhibition is often impaired in children with autism. We also see it in other children with sensory kinds of uh, concerns where Mm -hmm. they're maybe attending to things that are not relevant or they're over attending to something that um, is, is of interest to them, but maybe impeding their ability to perceive and interact in a more wholesome fashion, you know, and in autism, of course, that that impairs their ability to engage socially. So, um, so some of it is that inhibitory process. Another way is um, the timing of the sensory information that they're putting together. And, and sometimes I, um, I think, especially with autism, that they're getting the information, but in different time sequences. So, so perhaps that whole perceptual unit of an experience is, is not coming in as a single perceptual set because some of the tactile might be coming in slowly, maybe the, the visual is coming in rapidly, and so their actual perception of an event might be quite skewed or distorted. So their behaviors then are going to be quite different because they're not reacting typically with the rest of the group, and that'll cause, I guess, us typically developing people to go, what's going on? 
Correct. And, uh. and, and in fact, there's some evidence um, of synesthesia in autism, and that is making unusual associations between sensory characteristics of an event. And, um, and so they're finding that in autism that their perceptions may be quite different um, depending on, on the timing and what they're able to perceive. And what, what we also see is that even though they have the capacity to perceive the whole perceptual field, like you come in the room, you see everything. What mm-hmm. we all also see in autism is that they will have um, a limited perceptual awareness. So they're not actually perceiving the whole, say, visual field or auditory field, but but maybe some aspects of that are magnified or they see some parts of it, but they'll completely miss other parts, even parts that are relevant. And so they're missing huge parts of the perceptual field that us neurotypicals are able to come in and at a glance we can... Um, you know, see the whole room and figure out what all is in there and where we want to go and the spatial arrangement of objects, things that we might want to interact with, or even, you know, what people are feeling based on, you know, how we're looking at their face and what we interpret from the look on their face. Okay, so an example of this might be a a child with autism again walks into a room and is bothered by the lights that they're drawn to that in a way that irritates them where neurotypicals wouldn't be bothered by that. Correct. Um, that, you know, and that is an atypical reactivity. If we stay in the line of perception, maybe another example would be that the person with autism gets very fascinated by the green triangle in the room. So maybe something that has a green triangle, or maybe there's a shadow coming through the light and they're, very interested in looking at those patterns. And so the interest in the patterns of the shadows or the, or the shape or the color then uh, doesn't allow them to take in the whole field. And they may not even recognize that there are other people in the room or that their favorite food is in front of them or that, you know, there's toys that they might play with. Oh, that's interesting. So I had a question about sensory motor activities. So if I walk into an OT, an occupational therapist room, I usually see a swing, maybe a squeeze machine, a bunch of things for people to climb and all that. And what is going on there? And could you talk about the difference between uh, proprioceptive and vestibular processing as well along with that? Sure. Um, well, one of the theories from Dr. A. Jean Ayers, who was the occupational therapist, and and she also had a degree in educational psychology that formulated um, the theory of sensory integration and the practice as as we use it in occupational therapy. One of of the ideas that she had was that um, children uh, had an, an innate drive to develop their sensory motor abilities, and that if we could facilitate that drive in them that they would then be better at their perceptual motor abilities because we certainly know we can enhance it in a typical system. And then she said, okay, if we can identify those problems in children, we could also remediate them. And so many of the kinds of activities that she designed were in the systems that help a child know about their body. So the tactile activities, um, vestibular with the swings and defying gravity and Mm -hmm. moving the head through space and then 
the proprioceptive system, which is your basic system, to know the force and direction of your movement. So together, those body-centered sensations helped the child know better where they were, how to move, and be more effective in being adaptive physically in their environment. So how do you know, like how can you tell if a child needs more proprioceptive input or vestibular, and then how do you know how much to give without possibly giving too much? Well, it's critical to have a, a very discreet um, assessment. Okay. And so um, we believe that in order to do this kind of intervention, well, uh, you should be an occupational therapist with postgraduate training in area sensory integration, which is a trademark term. And, and part of that training is in the use of assessments that include those assessments of perception in vision, auditory, proprioception, tactile, vestibular areas, and the way that it impacts postural motor skills and praxis and that planning ability, as well as sensory reactivity. And we usually get that from questionnaires by parent or care teacher report, caregiver report, but that's not adequate to just have the caregiver report. We really want to directly assess. So, so from those assessments, we analyze the pattern of sensory integrative problem, and we know those very well because there's a long history, 50 okay. years of research looking at the patterns of sensory integrative problems. We can identify the pattern in the problem, and then we customize the intervention. So the intervention is very um, targeted to the areas of concern related to the outcome. So, so this is a very uh, tailored customized intervention. So it isn't just, oh, let's put kids on swings, although that might be good just developmentally. Kids benefit from swinging on a, you know, like typical playground activities. But Mm -hmm. the intervention itself is very customized according to what the assessment data finds and the way that we find Mm -hmm. that these systems work together so that the child can be better integrated and more adaptive. How hard is it to figure out? Uh, I mean, you mentioned there's 50 years or so of research, but can you feel like you can be pretty accurate of what a child's needs are and then how much input to give to help them? Yes, we, those people who have had adequate training, the, the occupational therapists that have had adequate training, we are, we're uh, we feel very confident about how we're um, identifying from the data. We use a data-driven clinical reasoning model. So we're using our assessment data. We're developing our hypotheses about the relationships mm-hmm. in the data. We're customizing uh, an intervention that is specific to the needs of the child and then also toward participation-related outcomes. And then we're, as we go, we're identifying whether or not the, the intervention is, is meeting those targets. Okay. All right. So I, I wanted from, let's say, a teacher's point of view or from a parent's point of view, could you tell us a little bit about uh, sensory seekers and sensory avoiders and what sort of behaviors they might exhibit? And then even what sort of uh, activities we could use or an occupational therapist could use to help them? Yeah, that, that's interesting that, that you're asking about seeking and avoiding um, because I, I've talked a lot about perception, but another way that a 
child or even an adult might be um, struggling to process sensory information is by their reaction to it. So this Mm. is um, different than the perception. The perception informs cognition because it's basically information processing. What kind of sensory information are you using to make decisions about what you're going to do on a moment-to-moment basis? The reactivity is different. The, The reactivity is how much do you enjoy or dislike that sensory event, or maybe it's neutral. So for most of us, neurotypical people, we will have a range of preference for mm-hmm. certain smells or tastes or, you know, a crowded, noisy room at a party, and you really love that with loud music versus those people who don't really care for it. Okay, there's, there's a typical range of enjoyment, you know, from maybe pain to pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. And what we find in some individuals is that their reactivity to sensation is atypical. So um, the most common we see is uh, having aversive responses to certain kinds of touch or textures, okay. not being able to tolerate certain kinds of clothing or or socks or certain kinds of food textures. This is very common or sounds sometimes certain sounds are extremely distressing or certain kind of lights are extremely distressing to some Mm -hmm. individuals. This is very well documented in individuals Mm -hmm. with autism. And often what we're finding is sometimes there will be an extreme over-response to a certain type of sensation, say the feeling of that particular sock or a certain kind of um, pair of pants, and uh-huh. then not feeling other very important sensations like pain. So having an extremely high pain threshold where they've actually hurt themselves, but they didn't feel it. So what we're seeing is that that there can be a, a, an extreme range of over and under reactivity to one or more kinds of sensation in some individuals. Okay, so with this kind of atypical reactivity, what uh-huh. we see is sometimes, you know, children, it can also be adults, but in children that they're actually looking for more sensation in certain areas. So okay. um, in autism, what we see is a lot of movement, visual movement seeking. So wanting to look at things that spin or move, that's a very common feature, or... Um, maybe a lot of uh, proprioceptive input. So a lot of, you know, pushing or pulling, you know, on joints or kicking or running or hanging. Um, Or sometimes we'll see a lot of pressure seeking to the tactile system. So they'll be maybe pushing on their joints or pushing on certain parts of their body, um, spinning themselves. So you'll see this to an exaggerated degree. So you might see it in typical children, but it's to an exaggerated degree. And and then when we consider it problematic is when it's really interfering with their ability to participate in other ways at at home or at school. And so they want to do some of those sensory seeking activities, but it's to the exclusion of a more uh, sophisticated or or maybe more socially acceptable um, set of activities that are going to help them grow. So that's interesting about when to 
do something about it, so to speak. So I know my son's 18 now, and it seemed earlier there was a lot of effort for uh, by his caregivers to have him stop doing stems. For example, he has a visual stem where he, mm. he wiggles his fingers and stares at it. And mm-hmm. where, what's the sort of thought on that? Maybe you already answered it in that, like, is it that you can just not worry about it as long as it isn't impacting life dramatically? Or should you always be trying to work to regulate the sensory system to the point where they become as typical as possible? Uh, well, see, I I actually have a very strong opinion about that uh, uh-huh. by working with individuals who are visually impaired. And, you know, when I was working with this population, there was a question of, are these blind mannerisms or are they autistic mannerisms? Okay, oh. well, they, they kind of originate, you know, from from a similar kind of neurological condition of, of there's something in the nervous system that isn't getting through and these individuals want more kind of, of a certain kind of sensory uh, type of information. And so, you know, the, the common feature was self-rocking. Okay. So this mm-hmm. was very common in the blind population it was common in the autistic population. And, and I interviewed an adult uh, with blindness who became quite successful. He was, uh, he became a teacher and he traveled abroad and he was very successful as a teacher. Um, and he was telling me, well, I remember when, when I would watch the children play on the playground, but the adults would come and they would say, you need to get up and you need to go play. And he said, and once, once I had to get up and go play, I could no longer see the other children playing. And I remember oh. what he would do is he would lay on the steps and he would rock and he had his eye, you know, finger in his eye. And his perception was that he was watching the other children play because he could hear them from there. But once he was immersed in the center of the children, he could no longer hear them play. And then he said he had a friend and they were on a roller coaster. And he said, he told his friend, he goes, you know, when you're on the roller coaster, you cannot rock. He (laughs) said, because the sighted people don't like that. And he said, but I told my friend that when you're by yourself, there's no problem. You can go ahead and rock. Those sighted people, they just don't like it. And, you know, it hit me because I was one of those sighted people who had asked him to get up. Go, get up, Matthew. Let's go, let's go play with the other kids. I had intervened, and, and I think it made me stop in my tracks and wonder what kind of perception are we expecting from a neurotypical or from a sighted perspective? Uh-huh. And what is the subjective participation of those individuals? And the, and the people with autism, they can't always tell you. Children can't always tell you. But so, so my point of view about that now is that I look and I see what is it, what can I infer that their central nervous system might need or want in those unusual activities such as, you know, looking at things spinning or doing those kind of visual stims. And, and if, I'm, if I can intervene, how do I intervene by uh, inviting that person to engage in things that are a, a little bit more um, robust, uh-huh. that provide a, a, a larger learning um, opportunity, and that are going to be more integrating to their nervous system? But not that I have a goal in stopping them from doing those things. I, I don't have any such goal. So I guess it also matters, or it depends on the, in, the intensity of it. So for my son, he just walks around 
looks at his fingers, you know, big deal. But if he was doing it to such the degree that he couldn't do anything else in his life, then I guess intervention would be more appropriate. Correct. Yeah. Right. Well, if it's inhibiting their ability to, but then I, I would still ask the question, why, what, what is that? And if it's, because what I see, if it's to such a degree, sometimes the stress levels are so high, it's the only thing they're able to cope with. And so then, then we need to take another look and how do we get that nervous system more regulated and decrease mm-hmm. the stress so that they are not doing extreme sensory seeking. And, but I would say, you know, my, my dividing line is whether it's self injurious or other injurious. And in that case that, you know, that can't, you know, that can't continue. Then, then there needs to be a more extreme set of interventions to help that person get out of those either self or, or other directed kind of injurious behaviors. Sure, and in that case, you're probably talking about kids who or might bite themselves, bang their heads on the wall, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and and for the blind population, it was that eye poking they could nucleate the eye. Oh, so you know, okay. so yeah, I heard, I heard you mention cases, that, but I wasn't sure. It, it literally is that's what you're talking about poking your eyes. It's literally eye poking. Yeah. Huh. Um, so anyway, um, that's where we go. Okay, well, what could we do? to engage that individual in more meaningful activities that um, help them to engage better and, and to reduce any kind of self-harm, yeah. Sure. I'd like to turn now a little bit about just sort of, I guess, the understanding of the whole field from just a, a layman's sort of perspective. So when I, whenever I go into an IEP meeting, usually, I mentioned this before, that the OT is often the sharpest person in the room, that they have this discussion, they come in and give a really interesting explanation of, you know, how, again, my child's case, how he works, how his sensory systems work. But I'm not always sure that everybody understands the level of importance. And I'm wondering if, just as a profession, if OTs feel a little frustrated that what they're asking for and what they're pushing for, it has a huge benefit to a child, but not necessarily that it's sort of so complex. Not everybody necessarily understands how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I agree that um, I think especially on the educational team, the occupational therapist is often comes with a quite a different point of view because our background is coming out of the, the health sciences, uh, you know, okay. more, you know, linked to, you know, medical practice, but we straddle medical, educational, and mental health practices because our focus is on, uh, it's very practical. Occupational therapists is a very, occupational therapy is a very practical profession. We want people to be able to do their daily life activities or occupations. So, and we think that in the doing of, those needed and wanted activities, we are uh, providing health-promoting opportunities. So this is the value of occupational therapy, and that's pretty broad. But in order to get to practice, what, what we do is we do activity analyses. So we look at what a person is able to do and what are the strengths that enable them to do those things. And then we look at what they're not able to do that they want to do or someone mm-hmm. wants them to do. We do a discrete activity analysis, so looking at the underlying contributors, and then we try to put those things together in practice. So the intervention then is taking those strengths 
and then weaving that together with some of those um, things that might be more vulnerabilities in order to get them to do more, you know, to to have more fulfilled engagement in, in occupations. So, so it's, it's a, a lot of clinical reasoning. It's a lot of um, looking for foundational kind of underlying concerns. And in an educational setting, I, you know, people are always talking about handwriting, but there might be 101 reasons why someone can't um, write well. Sure. And I think that's what the occupational therapist can contribute, particularly from a sensory integrative point of view, is which of the sensory areas could be impeding that. Is it vision? Is it tactile? Is it proprioceptive? Is it vestibular? Is it, um, you know, is it motor? Is it, you know, is it cognitive? Is it, you know, so there's, you know, so we would do that, that analysis, and then that's where we define our intervention. So it wouldn't just be practicing handwriting so we would not be coming from a skill building model although some people do but from a sensory integrative point of view we would be coming from a point of view of um, supporting the integrity of the central nervous system to process and integrate sensory information more to support motor and praxis ability and those are quite generalizable skills so it's you know specifically not a skill building model Okay. So, I mean, it, from a parent's point of view, if I'm sitting in an IEP, I have a behaviorist giving me suggestions, the speech therapist, the OT, the teacher. And, you know, depending on my level of understanding of everything, I might be a bit overwhelmed. Uh, maybe this is an unfair question, but should I put OT close to the top of the couple things that I can actually focus on? Oh, well, uh, you know, I'm an occupational therapist and I love my profession. I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctor to be in my profession. So you're going to so, say yes. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say yes. My husband's an OT. My daughter's an OT. We we love this profession. I mean, it, I also have enormous respect for, for my colleagues um, from other disciplines. And I do think that for most children, we need a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, I think OT is a very important team member. I I think maybe where where we might have such a strong influence is on those foundational skills. So, um, so you know, when does OT come in, especially for a child with autism? I would say immediately and early, mm-hmm. so that we could start working on those foundation perceptual and motor abilities. Because I think that's where everything kind of builds on top of those cognition, social communication, adaptive skills, motor skills. I mean, so all of those higher level attention abilities sit on top of someone's ability to respond appropriately to intensity of stimuli, how loud the classroom is or how their clothes feel, and then how they process that information to figure out what to do next. So tell me a little bit about some of the current, perhaps exciting current research that you're working on. Well, I'm very excited to share our AIRS 2020 vision, and you can see some of this on a website, airs2020vision.org. We have identified three primary goals, one in the area of scholarship, and our goal is by 2020 to have 100 peer-reviewed journal articles Um, in sensory integration, and we are well on our way to having those uh, articles reviewed, and they're on the website. Um, 
The second goal is in the area of assessment, and there's several assessments and sensory integration coming forward. And one that we're working on is the evaluation and air sensory integration. This is going to be a free and online access tool that is going to be normed in, well, we hope 100 countries right now. We have approximately 70 countries involved in this volunteer effort, and it's quite a rigorous set of 20 tests right now. I don't know at the end if we'll still have 20, but um, uh-huh. we're very excited about this because if children can be evaluated and identified for these issues, I think it'll be more likely for them to secure the intervention. And it's a it's a global initiative. And then the third one, again, another global initiative is in the area of education. We've identified international standards through the International Council for Education and Sensory Integration, and um, we have growing uh, educational bodies in, in many different countries and existing bodies that are, that are ensuring the, this high level of standard for education and sensory integration. So we're, we're very exciting, uh, excited to see these initiatives going forward on a global level. So we're coming towards the end of our time here, and I'd like to wrap it up with a final question. You know, you mentioned you have your bachelor's, your master's, and a doctoral degree in occupational therapy. Why? What took you down that path? You know, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I have two brothers who uh, have fragile X syndrome. Now, uh-huh. one of my brothers is now deceased, but... Um, Nobody knew what was impeding their ability to perform well, and my sister and I did well, and my brothers weren't doing well. And so I think later I I figured out that that probably drove me to um, try to understand and be a voice for people who didn't have a voice for their struggles. Um, And I think it also gave me more of an understanding when people were talking about these kinds of things because I could recognize it, you know, from my whole childhood with my brothers not being able to tolerate a lot of things that we could tolerate or getting upset with certain sounds or not being able to plan, even though they had pretty good capabilities in some areas. And of course, now they probably would be easily diagnosed with autism, but this was not the case. They were, you know, basically described as behavior disorders and then later intellectually impaired. And I think both of those diagnoses were wrong. So I think that drove me in unconscious ways, now more consciously. But um, also, because my profession is is so much fun, the intervention, the way we do it is in the context of play. So once we figure out what is going on, we try to set up a milieu in which the child is highly motivated to engage in these really wonderful sensory motor activities. And most of the children, they never want to leave, you know. So if I hear a child crying in the clinic, it's because somebody said time for shoes. Um, So I thought, well, why would anybody ever want to do any other kind of therapy? Because this is so rich and fulfilling. And then, you know, I saw huge benefits for children. And now, after so many years, we have research support. And, you know, we didn't have that for a long time. And some of our studies were not very robust. But this is a a very exciting time to be 
in this field. Um, I was just reading an article published November 2017 in Neuroscience, and it's an excellent article on sensory perception in autism, and the authors mm-hmm. are Caroline Robertson and Simon Baron-Cohen. And, of course, Baron-Cohen is right. a very uh, famous name in autism. Sure, and they are, yeah, and they're, this article is talking about the specific ways that sensory integration is impaired in children with autism. And even within my own profession, we are now moving forward with a lot of scholarship. We have several randomized clinical trials now, mm-hmm. and the cumulative effect of these studies is that we have met external criteria such as that for the um, Council for Exceptional Children as an evidence-based practice. So we, we're finally in an era where there's uh, a burgeoning amount of research support for this uh, method and also this theoretical point of view that has uh, long been, um, I think, poorly understood, especially outside of the field of occupational therapy. Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rolley, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for this opportunity. All right, that's a wrap for today's program, but you can get more information if you need to. Head to csnlg.com slash listen, where you'll find show notes from today's show as well as other shows that we've done. And, of course, there'll be an option there for you to subscribe so you'll be notified about every single show that we do in the future. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we'll talk again soon.